welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show about climate change by young people for young people. My name is Evan Combs, and I have an art degree in the middle of a recession. But joining me today are my two Berkeley-educated engineer co-hosts, Kelly Jiang and Stephen Chan. Today is the first ever recording of the Renewable Generation podcast, and we're doing it live during Engineers for a Sustainable World Earth Hacks. Today we're joined by passionate people from all over the world putting their heads together to solve the Earth's greatest challenges. People live on the call, where are you from? Put your answers in the chat if you haven't already, and I'll read them out throughout the duration of the show. But now, let's properly introduce my co-hosts. Stephen, let's start with you. Hey everyone, um, my name is Stephen Chan. So a little bit about myself. Um, so I was born and raised in California. Uh, I went to school at Berkeley and I studied engineering physics there. So through my degree, I, I always liked to kind of um, think about problems and you know, think about things from a very pr first principles standpoint, um, meaning like what is actually like the bottlenecks? What are actually the, the problems in any certain situation? And, and then how do we get through that? Um, and I, I like to think very step-by-step step, um, and try to follow a logical, um, you know, point-by-point point basis. Upon graduating, um, I was really thinking about climate change a lot and just thinking that it, it, it's, it's truly like the biggest problem that I see for the planet um, and for specifically our generation, like young people. We're the ones that are going to have to deal with all this. Um, when I graduated, um, I bought a one-way ticket to Europe. Um, and I tried to go join, you know, the Europeans doing, doing all the good work with like the Paris Climate Accord and putting together like innovative solutions and actually being bold about solutions. Um, I tried to start a company there and within about a month or two, failed the company there. Um, and, you know, I, I like to look back on that times and it was some rough times for sure. Um, but I'm really proud of about what I did there. Um, I put myself out there and put it all on the line and... I failed fast. The thing is, though, um, coming back from that, um, I really knew like a lot about myself and a lot about what it takes to run a profitable company in the energy space and what doesn't work. Um, so when I, when I moved back to, these, to the States, I um, ended up getting a job um, outside of D.C. Um, I work for a solar company right now. We're a developer and financier called New Energy Equity, and we develop um, commercial scale solar projects um, all around the United States. Um, so I, we do end-to-end -end, uh, developing and financier, which, uh, in financing, which means that we get projects from the very beginning when there's just a plot of land or a, a rooftop, and we, we bring it along the entire process from diligence through policy, um, um, permitting, and eventually construct it, and then eventually sell it off to end, an end uh, owner. Um, on top of that work, I also like to dabble in grassroots activism and, and organizing efforts, and I also helped um, pass um, the Maryland Clean Energy Job, Jobs Act, which um, boosted Maryland's renewable portfolio standard to 50% by 2030 and um, a plan for 100% for clean energy by 2050. Um, and ultimately, the reason I started this podcast is that we got to solve these problems. We, we got to get together. We got to unite and educate, educate each other and build a coalition to, to really build the future that we want. Well, if you have a fondness for solar panels and a plot of untapped land, hit up new energy equity. Now let's meet our second co-host. Cool, um, so I'll introduce myself as well. My name's Kelly Jang. I'm born and raised in Washington, and like everyone who was born here, I grew up um, loving the outdoors. And so when I went to college um, in Berkeley, I knew that I wanted to do something um, environmental. And seeing that climate change was the biggest environmental challenge, I think I decided to focus on something related to climate change. So my degree is actually in environmental engineering science, which if you don't know what that means, no one does. It was basically a degree where I could take whatever classes I wanted related to the environment, engineering, and or science, basically any class I wanted to take anyway. And as long as I convinced my advisor that it was like relevant, then I could take it. Um, so as I mentioned, I ended up focusing a lot on um, renewable energy. And um, when I was in school, in addition to classes, I dabbled in extracurricular activities like lobbying the California state government to pass the 50% um, renewable by 2030 standard, which has since been upgraded to 60% renewable by 2030 and 100% zero carbon by 2045. Um, I also was very involved with Engineers for a Sustainable World back in the day, which is so it's really exciting to be um, on this call now, seeing that Engineers for a Sustainable World is still going really strong at Berkeley, even despite these unprecedented times. Um, 
And so um, I also spent some time abroad in China where I did some work about um, sustainable development in rural communities and um, thinking about how sustainable um, rural development and sustainable energy can um, be an integral part of contributing to that. And that's something that's especially interesting now, um, especially because um, the current coronavirus crisis has called into question questions about um, supply chains and um, self-sufficiency in communities. So thinking about how maybe local renewable resources could play into that is a really interesting question. So after graduating um, from Berkeley, I moved back to Seattle to start working at this company called Centrica Business Solutions, where I'm on their technology strategy team. So Centrica is, um, you might not have heard of it in, here in the U.S., but it's one of the biggest utilities in the U.K. They own British Gas, um, and among other things, like they used to own a bunch of coal plants, sold them off, um, and now are trying to really move from being a very fossil fuel-heavy company to being involved in the renewables and distributed energy of the future. And so what my job is essentially is we're looking at some of the emerging technologies ranging from things that are existing today like energy storage to things that might not um, be commercially ready for another five to ten years like um, green hydrogen, um, even carbon capture, synthetic fuels, things like that, and trying to figure out what our company's strategy should be um, to remain relevant as an energy company as the world moves towards decarbonization. So the reason I'm excited to be on this podcast is that in my day job, I spend a lot of time thinking about like technology markets and those kinds of things. But ultimately, why I'm interested in the space is because of the questions of morality and philosophy and kind of like we're doing this because we care. We owe this to our future and kind of diving deep into those questions as well. Um, in addition to just kind of like the business and technology of things, I think now more than ever, we're realizing that. Um, the economy is kind of a human and social construct, and um, I think there's a lot of hunger to dive deeper into the core motivations behind why we do these things. So when Stephen reached out to me um, to start the podcast, I was like, heck yeah, let's do it. So I'm really excited to be here with all of you today. Well, thank you so much, Stephen and Kelly, for sharing and condensing your life's work into a five-minute intro. Uh, so now we're going to move on. Our main discussion today will be about the role of individual versus collective action for climate solutions. But first, we're going to cover the bases and start off with a brief overview of the science and history of climate change. As a little 101 class for anyone that maybe isn't as familiar with climate issues as uh, my two co-hosts are. So our first question is going to be uh, about the science of climate change. When did climate change begin? And when did scientists first start studying it? Large-scale climate change essentially began with the Industrial Revolution when people started um, burning coal for energy. So the first scientist to actually identify that um, the burning of fossil fuels could potentially lead to climate change was Svante Arrhenius. He was a Swedish scientist, and he was the first one to posit that carbon dioxide, or CO2, levels in the atmosphere affected global temperatures. Um, he believed that the effect would happen over the course of several centuries, and so it was something that we wouldn't have to worry about. But this was in the late 1800s, so it ended up happening in one century, which is, you know, a bit ahead of schedule, but that's okay. So there's another scientist called Charles Keeling. In the um, late 1950s, he started measuring global carbon dioxide concentrations at the observatory in Mauna Kea. People were like, why are you measuring that? It's probably uninteresting, doesn't change a lot from year to year, whatever. The first major founding that they found was that there's a big seasonal variation in the amount of carbon dioxide. So in the summer, when uh, the spring and summer, when plants are growing, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere decreases um, by several points. And then in the winter, when the plants aren't growing as much and um, the amount of carbon dioxide will increase because the animals are still eating and producing carbon dioxide. Um, and then in 1961, um, he also published the first paper showing that there's a trend towards increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, despite the annual fluctuations up and down, the general trend is towards increasing amounts of carbon dioxide. So since then, um, the observatory in Mauna Kea has been continuing the um, carbon dioxide observations, and the curve of carbon dioxide concentrations is named the Keeling Curve in his honor. Well, thanks for that, Kelly. Uh, moving on to our second question. Uh, I know this is a question that I had uh, before this podcast, which is, uh, why was it called global warming when I was a kid and then suddenly changed to climate change? Yeah, so global warming and climate change, right? Um, First of all, I would like to distinguish those two things as they're actually different things, but there's, they're 
essentially the same, which is what people are confused about. So one body that you should be familiar with is called the IPCC, or the Intercontinental Panel on Climate Change. This is a body that was put together for, um, by the UN in 1988, and they more broadly talk about climate change in general, which is, is a more vague and, and nebulous term. Um, so, you know, let's get down to like brass, brass tacks here, right? Like on average, the world is getting warmer. Like the degree Celsius average temperature of the world is going up. Um, but so the thing is that um, sometimes it doesn't go up like every year. For example, um, certain like a year or two ago, we had like a really strong polar vortex, um, one of the coldest winters we've ever seen um, in the United States. And so people can point to these kinds of um, events and say, oh, global warming is not happening. It's actually getting colder. Um, and that's, you know, that's like a true thing that's happening. So that's why climate change tends to be a little bit more a safe of a term. Um, and that's, that's also due to um, the planet is a very complex system that has lots of uh, air currents flowing from like the south latitudes to the north latitudes. And um, so it, it ends up being a very chemi chemically complex um, process. But at the end of the day, really what, the reason why it's not called global warming anymore is because of one guy named Frank Lutz. Um, he is a Republican pollster. Um, in 2001, 2002, he worked with President W. Bush, uh, George W. Bush, to change the name to climate change. Um, this, this term is a lot less threatening. It's just, it's a change in climate, not necessarily global warming. Um, and he also, he, he told um, the administration to emphasize that the science has not been settled yet, that scientists do not have a consensus that this is actually happening. Um, in other words, he was sowing seeds of confusion and doubt. And that's something that Republicans have continued to capitalize on through the last two decades. Um, since then, though, um, it's interesting. Frank, Frank Luntz has actually started to shift his opinion. Um, in 2010, he, um, he realized that Americans actually wanted action against climate change. So he started to talk about things like energy independence, um, which is the Republican messaging of saying we should go towards clean energy. Um, and just last year, he actually put out a statement saying that he regrets his 2001 stance. Um, he says that he was wrong and he is now actually trying to work with Democrats and trying to create policy instead of playing the politics game. Yeah. And just to add to that, um, I think one reason why they preferred the term climate change is because then you could say, oh, the climate has always been changing. We don't know if it's human caused, whereas if it's global warming, that's something like very obviously the world as a whole is getting warmer. So that's a reason why climate change is seen as a less threatening term. So speaking of, about climate change, uh, I'd like to get to know a little bit more about how climate change works. And uh, I think a good place to start with there is uh, what is the greenhouse effect, Kelly? Yeah, so um, the greenhouse effect is basically the term for, um, it's basically caused by the fact that we have an atmosphere. So if you look at the moon, it's about, its average temperature is about minus 18 Celsius because it doesn't have an atmosphere. In contrast, we have an atmosphere full of all sorts of things mainly nitrogen and oxygen, but um, a mix of other things, including water vapor, um, carbon dioxide, which is um, two, are two of the main greenhouse gases. Essentially, these are things that when the sunlight hits the surface of the earth, they'll bounce back, and then um, these molecules will help trap a bit of the heat. So it's kind of like a blanket over the earth that traps the heat and actually allows life, because if we were like the moon, if we were at minus 18 Celsius, there would be no life. So the greenhouse effect, to some extent, is actually what enables life on Earth. But the issue is when we're disturbing this balance by even a little bit, that results in massive climactic changes that human society just isn't designed for. This is a question that I had coming into the podcast, which is uh, maybe a basic question to some people that are more familiar with climate issues than I am. But my question was, what influences climate change and what doesn't? And it's a question of scale. So like what from top tier to lowest tier, what is really affecting this change? Sure. Um, so the thing is, um, not all environmental issues are the same um, and not all climate issues are the same. And those are also distinct um, ideas. So for example, like reducing plastic use is a good thing we should do, um, but that's not something that is necessarily going to affect climate, which is talking about the carbon and the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Um, however, it is good for reducing ocean pollution and, and um, you know, killing less um, marine animals and, and polluting our water source overall. Um, so with, with carbon emissions, however, we, we, we 
should talk about environmental and climate issues. Um, overall, like the greenhouse gas effect that Kelly just described, um, that is, while it's also warming our atmosphere, it's also polluting our air and polluting our water. And that's an environmental issue. Um, of course, when we talk about environmental issues, we always have to talk about environmental justice as well, because um, disproportionately, the, the worst effects of um, climate change and environmental damage is going to affect lower income communities, which tend to be people of color. Um, so that's why we have to always have environmental justice at the core of any of our conversations or efforts with um, climate change. Um, another thing is that greenhouse gases, they stay in the atmosphere for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So um, when we talk about these issues, we have to think about things in a cumulative fashion. Um, so men Kelly mentioned that, um, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the emissions started in the industrial revolution. So we also have to account for all the emissions since then up to current day. And every, and you know, as time progressed, we tend to emit even more and more. Um, so um, really when I would, when I would um, look at the problem of climate change, um, at least in the US, um, I would frame it like this. So the US emits between six and 7 billion tons of greenhouse gases every year, six and 7 billion tons. And that's about the same as 50 times the weight of Manhattan every year. So um, within the US, um, there are about six sectors that we can think about with climate change. Um, there's the transportation sector, which is the biggest one, about 28% of that. There's the electric power sector, about 27%. Industry, um, which is like industrial uh, functions, such as creating um, plastics and creating um, steel and things like that, about 22%. Agriculture, um, which is um, both meat production and crops production. Um, and a lot of land use and water use, um, that's 10%. And then there's buildings, um, commercial and re residential buildings, um, which are about 12% um, overall. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the way you're supposed to look at it from a system-wide um, standpoint. And some of those sectors are easier than others to decarbonize. Um, electric power, for example, which is where I work in, um, we're, we're making a dent in that. We're, we're, we're talking about clean energy, we're getting rid of coal plants and we're making a moves on that. But what about transportation? Um, what about all the cars? What about all the planes and the trucks? What about industry? How, how are we gonna create um, petrochemicals? How are we gonna create certain products, right? Um, and now if we zoom out even further, so the United States is just one of the countries in the world, right? So annually we're about 15% of all global emissions. Um, and so when we think about decarbonizing the United States, that's all well and good, but we also have to keep in mind that we're gonna to have to um, keep diplomacy um, top of mind. We have to talk with other countries and really negotiate so that everyone is um, putting, their, putting their best foot forward and in good faith trying to reduce carbon emissions. Um, so on that, I'd like to hand off to Kelly, um, talking about, you know, going off of this, like what is the problem with greenhouse gases and, and a positive feedback loops? Yeah, so um, thanks for that, Stephen. So another um, potential thing that people might believe is that carbon dioxide is the only um, greenhouse gas. This is actually not the case. So actually the primary greenhouse gas um, that we have in the atmosphere is water. But this is not something that we really affect because there's like clouds forming, it rains, et cetera, all the time. And so that's not something that we um, have an effect on. But in terms of basically like the moon is minus 18 Celsius, the average temperature of the earth is something like 10 or 15. And so that's like a 30 degree gap, the majority of which is made up by water. Carbon dioxide is the next um, biggest one in our atmosphere. It accounts for, um, right now it's about 0.04% of the atmosphere, but we've already, due to our changes in carbon, we have increased the global temperature by another one degree. There's other greenhouse gases that are even more powerful, like methane, which is 25 times as powerful as carbon dioxide, um, nitrous oxide, and also fluorinated gases, um, which can be several thousand times as potent as carbon dioxide. So there's other things um, done to be done to reduce these um, concentration of gases, such as reducing um, or, or reformulating the chemicals that are used in refrigerants, reducing their leakage, and things like that. So in terms of addressing climate change, reducing carbon dioxide emissions is definitely very important. But there's also other um, sectors like industrial refrigeration that maybe we don't think about on a day-to-day, -day, but could end up being very impactful. So back to what Stephen was saying about positive feedback loops. So as we were saying, the climate is a very um, interconnected um, system. So positive feedback loop doesn't necessarily mean it's good or positive. It just means that if you have one small perturbation, 
then you could end up resulting in a much bigger change. So for instance, um, the classic example of this is the idiom, like one butterfly flapping its wings in China can cause a tornado um, across the ocean in America. This is something like we increase the um, amount of carbon in the atmosphere by a little bit. This can result in things like the ice caps melting. Currently, the white ice caps reflect a lot of solar radiation into space. When they melt, it results in a dark blue ocean, which absorbs more solar radiation, which further increases the warming. So there's a lot of feedback loops like this, which means that even if the amount of carbon emissions that we've emitted are low, due to these positive feedback loops, the ultimate amount of warming that's caused could be massively greater than just the first order effects. So that's something to keep in mind when um, we hear scientists talk about climate tipping points. Um, those are basically the, re the result of feedback loops that are set in motion and then we can't reverse. So that's why it's so important to have um, fast, rapid, and immediate action on a large scale. And that wraps up our Climate 101 segment. This isn't a segment we're planning on doing on a weekly basis. However, we figured it would be a good starting point for those, like me, who don't know nearly enough about climate change and would like to know more. If you enjoyed the segment, let us know, and we'd be happy to bring it back. If not, I apologize for the offense. It most likely won't happen again. And that jingle insinuates that it's time for Evan's Climate Fact of the Day. Did you know, the reason that Leonardo DiCaprio hates climate change so much is because the only reason he got famous in the first place was due to an iceberg. <laughs> and that was Evan's Climate Fact of the Day. Alright, I'd like to give a couple uh, shout-outs to uh, some people that are tuning in live right now. Uh, we've got Harag, uh, who is currently in Norman, Oklahoma. We have Razi, who is in Berkeley, but from Iowa. We have Shannon, who's tuning in from SF, San Francisco. We have Jessica, tuning in from Brazil. Sanjana, tuning in from Hampton, Virginia. Isaac and Eduardo, who are both tuning in from LA. And Mia, who is turning in from Boston. Thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. All right, and now we are going to start our main portion of the podcast, which is a discussion on the merits between individual and collective action in halting climate change. Yeah, so um, the main reason we wanted to talk about this is because there's been, I think, a lot of articles cropping up recently about how focusing on individual action is kind of a scam. So this goes back to, um, in the like for the last few decades, there's been a lot of people saying like, oh, climate change is a problem, but you know what you should do? Like switch your light bulbs to LEDs, um, maybe drive less, bike more, and um, reduce your meat consumption and things like that, where it's focused primarily on what you as an individual can do. So rec more recently, there have been people saying, actually, focusing on your individual actions can only do so much when this problem is systemic. And so... Um, is there a role in individual action or is the only thing that we as people can do to stop climate change to vote for politicians that um, demand who are going to adopt progressive climate policies or support those policies? Because otherwise, are, are our individual actions totally hopeless? Stephen, what do you think? I think, you know, first and foremost, I think a lot of times when you see those messages about, um, you know, uh, you should, you know, use less plastics. Um, you should use that reusable um, grocery bag. Um, you should drive less. A lot of times, those messages are actually being pushed by corporations, um, and the reason why is because when they're doing that, they're putting the responsibility on you, um, the consumer. They're saying you should be less um, damaging to the environment. You should be more responsible and conscientious. And what they're doing is shifting blame away from themselves, which really are, you know, contributing to this massive problem in the first place and making us um, worry about this. Um, what I've seen a lot in my experience at Berkeley is a lot of people, um, like I, I love Berkeley. I, there's so many good people there who are working on the big, biggest problems in the world. And I see this, this almost, this purity Olympics sometimes where everyone's trying to be the most um, responsible and conscientious. And that is a good thing. I don't, let me be clear, that is a good thing, but we shouldn't be wasting our time and, and focusing on time on each other as individuals when um, really the big problem is, uh, you know, the systemic um, issues as you talked about. And so um, to bit, you know, that being said, I think the first thing 
that maybe I would like to talk about is one individual that goes against that narrative that I just said, which is Greta Thunberg. Um, she is just one child, um, a teenager now, um, who, you know, they, like every week on Friday, she would sit outside parliament in, in Sweden and just protest um, the leader's lack of action. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of proves that um, individuals really do have um, a lot to contribute. Um, so Kelly, like, you know, I'd ask you, like, what do you think on Greta Thunberg's movement and, um, you know, mobilizing crowds around the world? Well, I think the fact that you said Greta's effect on mobilizing crowds implies that what she's doing is inherently collective action, right? She's not saying, oh, I care about climate change, so I will try to minimize my own footprint. Um, she's actually out there saying we need the government to demand change. But also, as an individual, she's trying to reduce her carbon foot, her personal carbon footprint to the maximum extent possible. She's vegan. She doesn't drive. She doesn't fly. And so I think basically, to the, I think the best effect of taking these individual actions is showing that you're morally consistent. She's saying climate change is a big problem. She's not flying around everywhere just to speak at conferences. She's taking like zero carbon transportation electric vehicles, sailing across the ocean and sailing back across the ocean when the climate conference got rescheduled back to be in Europe. And so um, you can see that with a lot of other maybe adult um, climate activists like Al Gore specifically, and also our good friend Leo. Um, they've often been attacked for like, oh, well, Al Gore, um, he wants to stop climate change. Well, he lives in a 10,000 foot, uh, 10,000 square foot house. He can start with himself by not living so lavishly. Leo wants to stop climate change, he should give up like flying on his private jet. And so I think um, you can make this argument that, well, because climate change is dependent on the, to the cumulative total of the amount of emissions that are emitted. So like maybe if Leo can fly on this plane and talk to this government that then decides to like shut down a coal plant, the net effect of that is reducing emissions. So it's OK. But I think because it is such a moral issue, people don't look upon that very well. It's kind of like the concept of indulgences in the Catholic Church, right? Like, oh, you can cheat on your wife, but then pay the priest for an indulgence to, so that it kind of wipes clean um, your dirty deed. I think people don't like um, seeing that in people who claim to be climate activists. So to the extent that individual action can make you a stronger messenger, I think it's really important. But then um, it also can't distract from the problem of collective action, right? Because Greta, she isn't just trying to reduce her own footprint. She's also saying we need governments to institute these policies to, to get businesses to reduce their emissions because that's ultimately what um, the point of uh, her movement is. So it seems like a lot of the argument in favor of individual action is along uh, moral consistency. But is there any actual effect that individual action can have? Yeah. Um, and so I think, so on that topic of moral consistency and morality in general, um, I don't disagree with anything you said, Kelly. However, I think that the idea of, of putting morality into the conversation can be detrimental in a lot of ways. Um, I think that we shouldn't, it, it is an issue of morality, but the question is for me, if, we, if, if our goal is to solve climate change, um, by 2050 with a specific timeline, right? A specific time frame. What does it take to get us mobilized and kick ourselves into gear to get us there? Um, well, at the beginning of the show, I talked a lot about how Republicans have done a lot of damage to the climate movement. I also think that Republicans are essential um, to bring on board and to bring them onto the ship and um, make this a bipartisan effort. Let's suppose Joe Biden wins this, this um, election and then, you know, goes on for two terms and then we have a Democrat in, in office and enacts incredible climate policy, Green New Deal, mobilizing at, on a World War II level scale. Um, after his two terms, what happens then? Um, you know, maybe a Republican will come, come in and if, if Republicans are not at the table crafting new solutions, we will have lost all the progress we've made. On top of the, on top of the issue of morality, I'm also going to, like, if we look at individuals and say, okay, what, what does it take for... Um, individuals um, on mass to really reduce their carbon emissions? Like, do, do we make a dent? Like if, if we all acted like Greta Thunberg and we are all as amazing and, and talented as she was, like, would that make a difference? Um, so on that, I'd like to like crunch the numbers on that. Um, so 
The average American um, emits about 17 metric tons of CO2 every year. Um, and I think that there are three ways that individuals can really reduce their carbon emissions. I think it's through agriculture, um, through flying and driving, and through the energy use and um, renewables. So 17 metric tons, right? So let's say if we cut out myself as an individual, if I cut out meat entirely from my diet and only plant-based diet, I would save about 0.8 metric tons a year, um, which is not nothing. Okay. So like 0.8 metric tons is about, is, is about the same as 90 to hundred gallons of gas every year. So it's not nothing. Um, and as well, you know, as um, to Kelly's point um, from before, um, um, agriculture also consists of uh, land use issues and water use issues, as well as tribal and indigenous people's issues. So it's not just, you know, it's not just a, its own item in a vacuum. It's very in interdisciplinary. But if we're focusing just on carbon here, so 0.8 metric tons from cutting out meat entirely. Um, now, moving on to flying and driving. Um, if, if I, let's say, I never drove a car um, this entire year and I cut out flying entirely, right? Um, if I give up cars, that'd be about two, tr two tons annually. And if I gave up flights, it'd be between one and two tons annually. So that gives me about three or four ton tons right there. So, so giving up car travel and flying overall, it, let's say that saves us four tons to my carbon budget which is about one fourth of my 17, right? That seems like a lot and, and it really is a lot. Um, however, like we're also living in a city right now. We're, we're living in, a, in an urban district with a lot of mobility options. Um, what about people in rural areas? Um, it, it's, I think in my opinion, it would be unreasonable to ask those people to give up their, their cars and, their, and their, you know, their driving, which is a lot of ways their livelihoods. Um, and lastly, um, looking at energy use and renewables, and, and I, you know, I work in a solar industry, right? If, let's say if I use 100% solar and wind energy, 100% clean and renewable energy sources, that would save me about 2.5 tons um, annually, um, which is about the same as giving up a car, never driving again. Um, so that, um, and that, you know, on the one hand, clean energy sources, um, 2.5 tons, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a good chunk. Um, I would actually argue that going to solar and wind energy is economically um, better. I think the incentive should be their economics and making it cheaper for consumers all around the world to just switch over to solar and wind, which is going to be technologically superior and have result in cleaner air and cleaner water, um, as well as contribute less to climate change. But I think it should be um, one of the last arguments that we use to compel people to buy it. Um, again, I'm always thinking about the framework of, of widening that tent and bringing people on board rather than, rather than shutting them out. Um, so overall, if we add all these up, uh, going completely vegetarian, giving up on flying and driving, and using only renewable energies, you'll cut your carbon profile by about half. And that is a lot, right? That is asking a lot of people. Um, what, what do you think is the number of people, you know, that are actually going to be willing to do this? Like, what do you think the number of people that are going to be willing to live their lives like Greta Thunberg? Like, I wish I could say that I, would, I could do it like her. I probably can't get as close to her. Um, Cumulatively and in, 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 on mass, um, I think this number would be very low. Um, so again, I'd point to, the, to what I said earlier. Um, here's the fact. 71% um, of the world's carbon emissions have come from the top, 100%, what, the top 100 corporations in the world, according to the Carbon Disclosure Project. So if we really want to think about solving the problem of climate change on a time frame to get there by 2050, then that means that we need to mobilize collective action. Going back to what you said on uh, switching uh, to renewable energy for economic reasons, I just wanted to clarify, what do you think are the economic benefits of switching to renewable energies? Yeah, um, I can take that one. So um, first of all, um, even so each flight emits one to two tons, right? So for the average person who doesn't fly that much, that might not be that much. But there's a subset of people who do a lot of business travel and if they cut out flying or switched a significant proportion of their flying to virtual um, meetings like what we're doing now, that could actually be a big impact for them. That's not everyone. Flying is like 2.5% of the world's total emissions. So even now with coronavirus, if flights are completely grounded, it's still a minuscule fraction of the total. However, it's a very small proportion of the population that's doing it. So there's some, there's some other statistic, which is like the richest 10% of people in the world are responsible for... Um, 
of like the vast majority of all emissions. Keep in mind, we here in the U.S., we are all part of the global richest 10 percent. And so we um, our individual lifestyles here are significantly more polluting than the lifestyles of people in India and sub-Saharan Africa. And so whatever actions we can take to reduce our own footprint will have an outsized effect. That said, though, I completely agree that what we need to do is um, use our love as individuals. We can use our leverage within maybe our own companies, with our own governments. Um, for instance, uh, people working for companies that can um, ask their companies to take stronger environmental action, um, that can be a great leverage point for you as an individual, advocating for your company to, for instance, switch to electric vehicles um, or, switch, or switch to having less meat served in your cafeterias, things like that, where you can use your leverage to get um, a larger scale change in an organization where of which you are a part and that you can influence. I think and that's something where you can have um, more leverage and can be more impactful. So the thing with renewable energy is that after they're constructed, they pretty much have zero marginal cost, right? So you have the solar panel on your roof. Once you pay for the solar panel, the marginal cost of using it is zero. Um, whereas for things like oil, there is a cost to extract the oil out of the ground. And so um, as we've seen now with the oil price crash, there's so many oil drillers just going out of business because they can no longer afford um, the cost of drilling to produce oil for zero or negative dollars per barrel. Whereas with something like solar or wind, because you've done the investment up front and now it's just producing the energy, it's a much more stable investment. And in addition, um, I think some people, there's this fallacy that there's been so much government support for renewables, they wouldn't survive without government support. There is also a lot of government support for fossil fuels. All the wars in the Middle East, trillions of dollars spent on things like that. The amount of um, subsidies that and tax credits that renewable energy has gotten in comparison is minuscule. So that's why I think um, there there does need to be some strong um, coordinated response to help encourage research and development into new energy technologies, as well as helping these new technologies that have been developed in the lab to get out into the market. That is a role that the government, national labs, um, and industrial policy should play. And ultimately, um, the thing with renewable energy as well is that it's a technology. So things like solar panels, right? Before, in the very beginning, they were invented to be used in space. They cost millions of dollars. Now, because we've been building so much of it, the manufacturing has scaled up, the cost has come down. It's similar to something like your computer or your phone. In the 80s, computers were the size of a whole room and had like 64 megabytes of RAM. Now you have a computer that's thousands or millions of times more powerful that fits in your pocket. And so with um, technology, um, the more that you develop it, the cheaper it'll get. Whereas with something like oil, because it's a resource that you're getting out of the ground, we've exhausted a lot of the really easy resources. Like previously, um, there's some places where like if you drill, the oil will just come shooting up. We've exhausted them all. We're now getting into really weird, unconventional resources like Arctic drilling, tar sands, fracking, where the cost and energy required to even extract that oil is just, it's increasing. There's no way it's going to come back down. And so um, the cost of uh, extracting oil is going up. The cost of using renewables is going down. And ultimately, in terms of economics, renewables will win out in the long term. Totally agree. Well, and on, on one thing I would just add to that as well is that we're not even factoring the social cost that oil companies have have. Is, is costing taxpayers by emitting their pollutants into the air. How many children with asthma are there now? You know, that number is increasing every single year because people live in increasingly polluted airs and increasingly polluted waters that now like the healthcare system is burdened with. What would you guys say to people that argue that the manufacturing of renewable energy solutions like the Tesla battery actually does more damage to the environment? So um, there have been life cycle studies on... Um, things like uh, electric vehicles. And so they found that um, an electric vehicle, the main source of emissions is from the manufacturing of the ba battery. That is true. But um, for a normal vehicle, if you assume a 10-year lifetime for both the Tesla um, and for a normal vehicle, the total life cycle emissions of the normal vehicle will be about twice as high as for the electric vehicle. So it's 50% better. That's good. Not great. Again, that shows that um, there is a limit to the electrification of um, single occupancy vehicles and that obviously the best solution is to use um, public transit or active transport like biking and walking. 
Um, but that also doesn't take into account the fact that at the end of the battery's lifetime in the car, so if the battery, originally it had, let's say, 300 miles of range. If it goes to 80%, like 240 miles of range, you might not want to use it in your car anymore. However, you could use it as an asset for grid storage. So it's like you could just put it as a power pack on your house, on Powerwall. It's pretty big. Even if it's only, you know, its capacity has been reduced, it can more than suffice for your needs for stationary storage. And so um, a lot of these studies have yet to take into account what are the end of life effects of the battery because you can actually continue using them even after they're no longer used in the car. So this is actually something that um, we're working on um, right now is kind of looking into what is the uh, potential for use of Second Life batteries. So it's a really interesting space that I, especially because um, a lot of EVs that have come onto the road have only come out within the last like five years. So we haven't yet gotten to fig figuring out what's going to happen to the batteries at the end of their life. And so it could, it could potentially be a really good resource for um, grid scale storage, but that's a question that... Um, people are going to be working on for the next few years. Oh, well, uh, today I learned that Tesla batteries are recyclable. That's good to know. So now we're going to wrap up the individual versus collective action portion of the podcast and move on to our final segment, the Green News Spiel, a segment where each of our co-hosts shares a recent news story that has to do with climate change. Stephen, you start. Okay, so um, just, this, just this past Friday, um, May 1st, um, for whenever this podcast actually airs, um, J.P. Morgan, Chase, and company disclosed that they will be naming a replacement lead independent director. So what does independent director mean, right? Anyways, like independent, it sounds as if there's someone outside of actually being associated with the company that is going to be helping make decisions, um, which to me seems smells fishy right off the bat. Like independent is already, they're already disassociating themselves from certain parts of decision making. So what really, what, you know, what, what it really amounts to is this independent director. Is, his name is Lee Raymond, who is now ousted from the board. Um, he was an Exxon CEO. Um, ExxonMobil is arguably the worst like, villain in terms of climate change that we've ever seen on this planet, arguably. Um, you know, I'm sure many people will de debate with me and definitely tweet at, tweet at me and let's talk about it. But this man has, has helped fund climate denialism for... Um, going on four decades now. Um, and he's largely the reason the Republicans have been bought out by oil companies. Um, so just two days ago is a truly monumental win. Um, he, under tremendous pressure from the New York City Comptroller, which is the undisputed financial capital of the world, and the Stop Money Pipe campaign, the most important climate denier in the, in the history of the earth has been ousted. So again, this is a tremendous victory for shareholders and for the planet. There must be no place for a climate change denier and former Exxon CEO on JP Morgan's board. So I just want to say that the winds of change are blowing hard and power is starting to shift. Cool. Um, so my green news spiel um, is about the emissions drop from the coronavirus. So there's an expected 5.5% uh, um, global drop in emissions um, this year, 2020, relative to 2019. So this is something that people have been saying is the largest ever annual fall in carbon dioxide emissions, more than during any previous economic crisis or period of war. Unfortunately, this is not even coming close to um, bringing the limit of only 1.5 degrees of global temperature rise within reach. So to achieve 1.5 degrees in, or to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, we need global emissions to fall by 7.6% every year this decade. Even with the coronavirus and seemingly everything being shut down, we've only reduced emissions by 5.5%. So that's kind of, and that's kind of a reality check for those of us who want to believe that our individual actions can help. Because I think at this point, we're all individually just, or many of us um, who are able to, are individually staying at home, not commuting anywhere. And that still only resulted in a 5.5% global drop in emissions with extreme pain. And so I think what we need is a lot of investment into lower carbon technologies, renewable energy, um, electrification of heating like heat pumps, um, electric vehicles, public transit, uh, infrastructure to support people being able to um, walk and bike. And those are things that it's not possible to do on an individual level, right? Like if you live in a place where you would like to bike to work, but you do not want to get run over by a car while you are biking in a car lane... That's something where there needs to be some um, action beyond just you as an individual. So 
That's uh, my green new spiel. And also Jessica in the chat made a good point. Um, there is a lot of outsourcing of social and environmental damage in mining for um, battery materials in developing countries. This is definitely really true. Um, and so um, there's also a lot of questions about the recycling of batteries. Currently, the way that they recycle lithium-ion batteries does not recover the lithium because it's not valuable enough for them to even recover it. So they just use it as a low-value additive to concrete. This is a problem. And this is something that um, I think there's new regulations coming up in Europe about you need to recover the lithium from lithium-ion batteries. And I think this is another example of pushing um, regulations on um, the, co the company rather than the individual. So um, companies basically... Um, if you say to the company, you have to make your battery able to be recycled and recover all of the precious metals in them, then they will design their batteries in a way that they can do so. There's a lot of smart engineers working there. If they don't have to take that in mind and they can just recycle it by essentially burning it or dissolving it in sulfuric acid, which is what they do now, they will do that because they aren't being forced to um, use greener recycling techniques. Um, so um, I'll pass it back over to Evan. Um, uh, to wrap up the show. All right. Thank you, Stephen and Kelly, for your green news spiels. And thank you, Jessica, for your additive comment in the chat. Uh, speaking of the chat, uh, since this is our first ever live show, it would be nice to do a, a Q&A portion of the podcast before we uh, finalize and wrap up our first episode. So uh, if you have any questions for Stephen and Kelly, feel free to put them in the chat, and they'll be more than happy to answer them. Uh, from Christine, we have, how can we start conversations with those who may not believe in climate change? I can take that one. Um, I, that's something that I think about a lot. Um, like I said earlier, I think it's really important to win over Republicans and other climate change deniers. I don't want to say just Republicans, but largely it is. Um, so I think it's, it's important. Um, is, what's really important there is messaging. Um, I don't want to preach the choir. Okay? Like, I think I'll, everyone here already kind of agrees that we understand climate change is happening. We, are all, we all agree. This, I don't think it's very useful to sit around saying things that we all already agree with. Um, instead, I would want to reach out to people that I'm different from, that come from different um, worldviews and have different opinions on things. And I want to frame it to them in terms of what, value, what values they have and what things that they care about. So like Frank, Frank from Franklin's from before, the thing I would say a lot is energy independence. I would say, hey, you should put solar on your rooftop or you should invest in solar because it's going to save you money. I don't like... Like we don't have to agree on what the actual problem is. I, don't I know that in my head, I'm thinking about climate change, but I don't have to say that to them. I can just say, hey, I'm going to save you some money. And you know, who doesn't want to save some money? Um, and a lot of times I, I've talked to several, um, I've talked to a lobbyist from the Midwest who was telling me that his job was talking to Republicans all day long on these issues. And the moment you say the word climate change, they turned off. There, there's no more discussion to be had when you say the words climate change because it, it's just, that's just the way it is, right? Uh, some people have these certain, um, you know, that, that it, you have to just speak according to people's values and, and think about outside of your tribe, what, what do they think about? Yeah, I agree. I think um, some people, like, we basically just have to see what the end goal with policy is. I think another thing that speaks to a lot of people, especially now, is the idea of green jobs. Um, building solar panels, building wind turbines, manufacturing solar panels. Those are all good blue-collar jobs, and I think there's a big appetite in our country for those kinds of things to be able to make things and build things again. I think that's something that's um, really missing, and I hope that as we move towards maybe like phase four, phase five of um, coronavirus recovery, building infrastructure, building smart grids, transmission lines, that's something that um, I think, I mean, everyone is into the idea of building infrastructure from Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell. And I think as, even if you don't have to say climate change, if you say like we are building like innovative smart grids to make America a leader, like great. If people are into that, it doesn't matter how you say it. It just matters what the end result is. Well, I actually have a question from Isaac here that I can answer, uh, which is how often are you guys going to be doing this podcast uh, well, Isaac, uh, we're going to record at least one every week, and we're going to be releasing them every Wednesday on Spotify and Podbean. Uh, and we'll actually, we'll have a teaser for the topic of our next episode at the very end of the show. So thanks for asking. Uh, our next question actually comes from Shannon, which is, any particular or specific policy goals you guys want to see achieved ASAP? So real quick, I think um, 
quite simply just shut down coal plants. Um, it's an easy low hanging fruit. And um, like I said, cumul cumulative emissions matter. So the faster we can turn those off, the better it'll be in the long run. Um, not to mention that they're already economically a disaster. Like you would not want to invest your money in there unless you want to throw away your dollars. Um, so it's really easy to make the argument that we should take them away. Um, it's going to be economically better. It's going to be environmentally better. The only difficult part is that a lot of um, communities are coal communities. And um, by shutting down coal plants, you're essentially getting, getting those people outside of um, making them lose their jobs. Um, so we do have to think about creating a just transition and, and softening the blow for a lot of those people. Unfortunately, in my opinion, there's just going to be no way around it. It's going to be tough for them, but it has to happen. Um, I agree. I think something at the national level that could be really impactful is a 100% renewable energy standard for the whole country. There's been a lot of states adopting it. It's actually taken off a lot faster than we thought because it was first just California. And then I think now uh, many other countries have begun adopting that as well. I think at the national level, that's where we really need to take it. Um, and as far as the coal communities uh, piece goes, I think that's definitely something that's very important um, because the way that it's portrayed, I think shutting down coal plants um, for a lot of communities where um, that's like the number one um, employer and source of all their jobs. We see that a lot in the Midwest as well with the demise of um, manufacturing. That's pretty much the anchor for their entire community. And so figuring out maybe this community um, there could be a new type of manufacturing that comes up there, like uh, manufacturing solar panels or in places in Appalachia where they've been doing mountaintop removal mining, they could install wind turbines on top of these hills where the tops have been cut off. So thinking about things like that, or even maybe we don't need to be for them to transition into necessarily um, energy related jobs just to make sure that there's good jobs that people can have, regardless of whether they're, whether or not they're in the energy industry. So I think, um, in terms of as additionally, as we're thinking about the economic effects, just having the resources there um, coordinated to figure out what are the kinds of good jobs that we can have. Um, it's going to be something that's critically important to any uh, government uh, response. And with that, we conclude our Q&A portion of the podcast. And that is our show. Thank you so much for tuning in to our first episode. Uh, it really means a lot that you guys would take the time out of your day to listen to us. Uh, please tell your friends, family, any climate change deniers you know out there about the podcast, and maybe we can start turning our individual action into some more collective action. Next week, we'll be discussing the question, why is climate change politicized? Mm -hmm.